Thanks for listening to the Mornings with Carmen LaBerge podcast, made available thanks to support from listeners just like you. Inspiring you to bring God back into the conversation of the day. This is Mornings with Carmen LaBerge on Faith Radio. If we're gonna fly, we fly like eagles. Hey, good morning, friend. When was the last time you participated in a good brainstorming session? You know, that uh, free thinking, freewheeling, hey, let's put some stuff up there on the whiteboard. I love a good brainstorming session. So let's have one this morning. Our Growing Your Faith verse of the day comes from Hebrews chapter 10, verses 24 and 25. It's really, it's really an invitation to some Christian brainstorming. Here's how uh, the writer of Hebrews frames it. Let us think together of ways to motivate one another to acts of love and good works. Now, doesn't that sound like a brainstorming session? Let us think of ways to motivate one another to acts of love and good works. And let us not neglect our meeting together, as some people do, but encourage one another, especially now that the day of his return is drawing near. Uh, Just yesterday, I had a, a... a woman randomly suggests to me that the day of his return is drawing near. And so um, the writer of Hebrews, who penned this some nearly 2,000 years ago now, uh, understood that the day of Christ's return was drawing near. How much more near is his day of return today? So how much more critical this brainstorming session we're invited into to think of ways to motivate one another to acts of love and good work. So let's get to it. Let's do this. Let us brainstorm together. Let's think of ways to motivate one another to love and good works. Let the brainstorming begin. You got an idea? You can text me 877-933-2484. What motivates you? Why do you do what you do? What might motivate someone else to join you in an act of love or good works today? Now, if you ask that question at work, people say things like, oh, I'm motivated by deadlines. I'm a deadline-driven person, or I'm motivated by goals or rewards, like I'm motivated by uh, the possibility of a pay raise or a bonus. Maybe at work you're motivated by learning new things or improving product services or systems. Maybe you're motivated by being an essential part of a team or mentoring others. Maybe you're simply motivated by a paycheck. I don't know. What motivates you at work? If you ask the same question about what motivates people at home, you get a whole different set of answers. People say things like, I'm motivated by the love of my family or the love of my home, the desire to live in a way that's orderly and beautiful. Um, I want to eat well. I want to live well. I want to have a place of peace. Like people are motivated at home um, in many different ways than they're motivated at work. Now, how about at church or um, when it comes to the things of the faith? What motivates you? If you asked people that, the top two reasons, particularly when you're talking about service, when you're talking about good works, top two reasons, love and hope. Number one reason is love. You love God. You love people. You love creation. You love the things that God has called us to do. You love the Lord. Um, People are precious. Love. The motivation is love. Second reason is hope. People serve 
Um, they do what they do. They do good works because of the future filled with hope set before them. So the verse says, let us think of ways, let us brainstorm, let us think of ways to motivate one another to acts of love and good deeds. So today, how might you motivate someone else to join you in an act of love or a good deed? You could invite them, challenge them, entice them, reward them, appreciate them, inform them, ask them, involve them, trust them, tell them you need them. So here it goes. Uh, I want to invite you during the month of September to consider a financial gift to the Ministry of Faith Radio. I want to challenge you to um, consider an act of um, generous support. Um, I will uh, definitely appreciate you. I will thank you in advance. I will keep you informed of the need, and I will straight up ask you because we need you. We need you to be involved in this ministry. I trust you um, to give what the Lord has set in your heart to give and placed under your stewardship. And yeah, I'm going to tell you that we need you. We need you. Um, So I want you to consider uh, financial support of this ministry. Maybe that could be the act of love or the good deed that you consider today. You can give right now at MyFaithRadio.com or simply by texting the word GIVE to 877-933-2484. Our friend Nick Pitts is going to join us next, and we're going to talk about dreams. Do you have a dream? Martin Luther King Jr. had a dream. How might we make those dreams come true? That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. Hey, our friend Nick Pitts is with us this morning. Do you have a dream? Martin Luther King Jr. had a dream, 1963. Um, The I Have a Dream speech. And we're going to talk today about uh, how the dream comes true. Good morning, Nick. Hey, good morning, Carmen. Happy Tuesday. Happy Tuesday, man. Happy Tuesday. Um, when uh, When you think about the context and the content of... Martin Luther King Jr.'s I Have a Dream speech, 1963, a long time ago, predates um, both of us. But we think about how that dream can come true today. Um, maybe just wander around a little bit in, in that idea. Yeah, uh, I was just captivated. It's been 60 plus years. And what has changed in this 60 plus years since he first gave that speech? I guess yesterday marks the 60th anniversary and one of the things you continue to see is one, the famous line, don't judge someone based on the color of the skin, but the content of their character. So there's a changing perspective from how we deal with one another interpersonally, but also it's the compelling factor as well. Compelling factor being rooted in the, in, in the biblical narrative, as well as in the church of Jesus Christ. And what we continue to see is that there's been great improvement relative to uh, how we interact one with another from 1963 to today. Um, One of my favorite stats just to look at is interracial marriage. Interracial marriage was at 3% of marriages in the U.S. were interracial back in the 60s. Today, that number's jumped sixfold now. And among individuals, according to a Pew study, that look favorably or don't, don't look favorably upon interracial marriage, that number is jumped up to 90%. So overwhelming majority of Americans now have an approving, positive view of interracial marriage. There's been some change. Is there room for improvement? Of course, there's always room for improvement into this more into this project of creating a more perfect union. But there's been significant strides. But also, if we're just being completely honest, there's also been some steps back relative to the motivating factors 
because today when you compare activate activities around the church to what they were in 1963 we've seen a decrease to say the least yeah i think that there's a lot of people who forget that um you know we call it a speech but for martin luther king jr really every time that he um took to a podium he understood himself to be taking to a pulpit of sorts um he was a preacher and um and his social commentary was derived from the prophetic word of god um and he he was really trying to ignite the evangelical imagination in america to reclaim the reality that we all stand on equal footing um, at creation, at the cross, and in the kingdom of heaven. Uh, and I think that we sometimes miss that in our contemporary conversations because we allow a secular culture to um, to strip the preaching um, of its, it, well, we let them call it speeches. We let them, you know, yeah. we... we we buy into this idea that Martin Luther King Jr. was a political leader, and he was first and foremost a pastor. Yeah, it's a TED Talk. We, we've got TED Talks ah. today instead of sermons. Mm-hmm. Um, and nothing against TED Talks. I love a good TED Talk. It's usually very compelling. Um, but at the end of the day, uh, I am persuaded by reason, obviously, but I, am, uh, I have staked my life on the claims of Jesus Christ, who he says and what he's called me to do. And so— um, that the biblical narrative holds a much powerful, much more powerful motivating factor in my life than uh, research or uh, best practices that I would hear from a TED talk. And King was compelled by the biblical narrative. He, he reminded that the civil rights movement was fueled by the biblical narrative's idea of making his kingdom come, his will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And in heaven, there is no racism. We know it to be true from Galatians 3 that God isn't, God's, there is neither group. Greek, nor Jew, nor male, nor female, like we're all united in Christ Jesus, right? It's rooted in the idea of what Paul's going to say in Ephesians 3, of wanting to, that the church would display the the multicolored, the manifold wisdom of God to this world, that we're to be united, not divided on that, on the most segregated hour of of time in America, which is 11 o'clock on Sunday morning according to King. We're, we're called to be united one with another to show that our unity is something deeper than uh, just the color of our skin, but who we're following and staking our life on, which is Jesus. Yeah, I love um, I love Martin Luther King Jr.'s teaching on, on the topic of Jesus being the great equalizer. Um, and when he talks about man is a sinner in need of God's forgiving grace, and that is— um, not pessimism, he said. That's Christian realism. Um, he was a realist. He talked about the gift of love. He talked about the strength of love. He talked about the need for love. And he talked about the reality of love that came in a person. And his name is Jesus. Um, and so when when you consider, as you're listening today, and you consider the words and the legacy of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., um, I want you to remember that the dream for King— the dream started with God, and the dream was unpacked in the person of Jesus, the Son of God. And it was through an authentic relationship with Christ that Martin Luther King Jr. believed we could all become agents of healing 
in our in our sin sick world where the sin of racism and um, and prejudice were not only so real in his day, but so real in our day as well. So do you dream the same dream as Martin Luther King Jr.? And if so, you got to dream that dream in the context of um, of who God is and the reality of God's redemptive plan in the context of human history. We're going to continue our conversation with Nick Pitts here in just a moment. We're going to talk about life on the farm. What was life on the farm like? Uh, maybe in 1939, what's life on the farm like today? And why are people... Uh, taking a renewed interest in life on the farm. That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. The Bible is valuable, and reading and studying the Bible can transform your life. Hi, I'm Angela Smith, host of Reading the Bible Together podcast. Several times a year, we release a new Reading the Bible Together study. We've studied Luke, Daniel, Advent, Lent, and so many more. You can access all of our studies for free by going to the Reading the Bible Together resource page at myfaithradio.com. In addition to the studies, we also have the accompanying podcast. You can listen wherever you listen to podcasts. You can study on your own, or if your small group or Bible study is looking for what to study next, check out the Reading the Bible Together resource page at myfaithradio.com. Nick Pitts uh, is here with us. He's a fellow at the Institute for Global Engagement, among other things. Um, so, Nick, I came across this treasure trove. Um, it, it's it's hosted at the Library of Congress, and it's this treasure trove of interviews with people who live on farms. And I mean, you can dig around in it, um, you know, all day long. It's really it's really cool. Um, uh, Library of Congress, loc.gov. And I just went to the one that was the interview, the farm interview for today, this day, August the 29th, but in 1939. And I found it absolutely fascinating, um, not only to read about life on the farm then, but it so tracks with what my mom describes as her experience as a little girl, um, the child of uh, the daughter of a tenant farmer in this time period. So my mom, born in 38, uh, and her dad um, had about an eighth grade education and was a tenant farmer. So they moved like 20 times before she got to high school. And she talks about, you know, these ramshackle houses that they lived in and they followed, um, you know, they, it was seasonal work. And so they moved a lot, as you can imagine. And, um, and it was hard work and everybody in the family pitched in. Um, so I was captivated by this piece. And then I was juxtaposing that by this piece that I read in the Washington Post about... <laughs> In the case of apocalypse, find the nearest 4-H club. There is a renewed interest in not only the hard work of farming, but um, the life that it provides not only to the farm family, but to the world. Old McDonald had a farm, and apparently he has some followers here uh, <laughs> recently. Yeah, it's, uh, it was fascinating. I, when, I read, when I read that diary entry, just kind of that day in life of, from 1939, I couldn't help but think that so many of those farmers, especially those young men that are on the farms, were in a few short months going to be called up. Well, I guess technically in a little over two, little under two years, we're going to be called up to go to go out to serve in World War Two. But little did they know that they were about to embark upon the second great war that was about to take over the world. Um, yeah, and it was just it was just a much more idyllic 
time one could say and so much has changed today right you've got uh there's very little of us that uh, have a direct connection I, I know that there's a growing uh farm to table movement but there's very little connection to an actual farm that we're living among you, you've seen not only interpersonal you've seen interpersonal rates as well have changed what whereas most of those farmers uh that they would have been handed over and given in marriage those young those young people Today, there's more single people than there are married people among young adults uh, today for the first time in history over the past five years. So it's just a, a very different time that we live in, but also a very compelling vision of what life could be. Super hard to run a farm all by yourself. Like, I don't oh, yeah. I don't think you can do it. Like, there's too many moving parts and too many things to do on any given day. Um, I mean, we do not have a big farm, but there is no way that any one person could keep up with the dogs, the chickens, the cows, uh, the orchard, the garden, the lawn, the trees. Right. I mean, you just you couldn't keep. And then you got to keep house and and, you know, and you and you got to cook and you got to I mean, it's just on and on and on. So there's just no way that one person could do it. So the farm family is essential as well. And so anyway, I just wanted to. I was just I just wanted to celebrate it and I wanted to oh, yeah. um lift wanted to lift up this um piece in the Washington Post in particular in case of apocalypse find the nearest 4H club. There does seem to be uh, a, a rising awareness in the culture that at some point um the good times as people are experiencing them are probably going to end and this person reflects on growing up in rural Ohio developing uh skills in 4H that would be needed in terms of resilience in a culture where, let's say, the power went out. So I don't know, yeah. just a few a few thoughts on this. I, you know, I the, one of the many reasons why I love that Washington Post article is because it, it shining through those black words on a white page was the dignity of work, regardless mm. of what society determines. Right? Like you can look down. There's been there's, you can cast aspersions on farmers. You can look down on that style of work because you're not making quote unquote, you're not making as much money or, or you're not receiving as much notoriety, but like was insinuated at the very end throughout the article is just the reality of you can collect as much gold as you want. You can collect as much money as you want. There's no amount. Money is only worth what someone's willing to take for it. And in an apocalypse, there's no amount of money. The true value in currency is going to be those tangible goods because you can't eat gold. You can't drink money. But you and what the farmer has is something of great value. But regardless of whether it's the apocalypse or not, it's the actually looking and seeing the hard work that comes from the hands of a farmer and, and the and the the rich wife that can come from it as well. I just I, I just really appreciated that piece that kind of gave the sci-fi view of a, a looming zombie apocalypse. Because <laughs> who among us is not going to read an article that t- doesn't talk about zombies? That's exactly right. Um, Nick, uh, I, I like you, um, just appreciate uh, the people across this great land and around the world who invest their love and their sweat um, and their time into the cultivation of, um, of the food that we eat. And uh, the people who are out there today tilling the soil, we've got uh, Kim on the on the text line today saying long days on the farm today at the University of Minnesota campus where they are harvesting silage for the dairy barn. So, you know, I am reminded that um, on 
uh, on university campuses across the country. Every single one of those land-grant universities in every state of the nation um, still has a production farm, um, and it is still taught at the university level at research institutions across the country. So I want to celebrate that as well. Maybe you're a 4-H person. Maybe you, um, you, know, you, you could reach out to your county extension agent today and just say thank you to them. Maybe um, you've got an ag program at your school. Hey, I don't know. Stop by the tractor supply and just tell them, hey, or the co-op and just say, hey, I'm glad you're here. Um, you know, yeah, I just uh, let's um, let's give a little uh, hat tip today to the farmers and the farm families. And let's just be sure that we are thankful not only for our daily bread, but for the people who grow the wheat um, that enable us to make it. So, Nick, as and always, the- thank you. Oh, yeah. Go ahead, man. As a second place. 4-H Clover Bowl winner. I want oh, to wow. also uh, to the FFA clubs and the 4-Hs of the world because I see you. I see what you're doing. And I know the hard work as a second place winner. Not that anybody's bitter over Jesse Dalton's uh, surprising <laughs> victory and questionable results, but I tip my hand to the 4-H clubs across the U.S. Hey, my mom uh, went to Purdue University on a uh, Indiana state 4-H scholarship that um, that she won in part because she uh, made the best cherry pie in the state of Indiana in the year that she graduated from high school. And she now, had made like 88, something like 88 pies. Her her 4-H teacher like kept, I mean, just, and she had to pick those, she had to handpick all those cherries and I mean, just on and on and on. So yeah, it's amazing. 4-H is amazing. I am who I am today in no small part because of 4-H. That's great. Yeah. I know. So great. All right. Hey, thank you, man. We love you. Thank you. Thank you, Carmen. Y'all have a great day. You too. That's Nick Pitts. Uh, You can find him at the Institute for Global Engagement. Let's go upwards with Max Lucado. Russia, Russia, Russia. Yeah, actually, I have uh, three Russia headlines uh, here for us this morning as we bring the mind of Christ to bear on the headline news of the day. Um, How long has it been since you have seen your brother, maybe your son, your nephew? How long has it been? Um, Paul Whelan is an American security executive. He is now serving a 16-year sentence in a Russian penal colony for crimes that uh, the American government and the Whelan family say that he absolutely did not commit. Paul Whelan's brother... Um, has been waiting years to catch a glimpse of his incarcerated brother. He got that glimpse from an unexpected source yesterday. Uh, A Russian state-controlled news outlet published footage of Paul Whelan in the Russian penal colony, eating lunch, doing various tasks around the facility. And so we want to celebrate the glimpse, and then we also want to plead for um for God to make a way where right now there seems to be no way for the liberation of um this fellow American. We learned last week that Russia's hired mercenary leader um who led an arm uh, an armed rebellion you'll remember this against the Kremlin just a few months ago stopped short of actually uh you know invading Moscow but they <laughs> they uh, they got pretty close. Um so um uh you, I'm trying to remember how to pronounce his first name. Um, I'm gonna, just going to say um, Pergosian because I can pronounce his last name more easily. Um, he died in a plane crash. Uh, Ten people on board a private jet 
Um, it exploded midair near Moscow. And since the event, um, Russian President Putin um, has been, well, and his cronies, they've been fanning these competing theories about the cause of the crash because they're trying to tamp down suspicion that uh, that Prigozhin's death was actually a targeted assassination by the Kremlin. So um, there have been demands that the Kremlin bury not only Prigozhin, but the other elite leaders of the Wagner group that were on that plane. Uh, there have been demands that they be uh, buried with full military honors. The Kremlin announced yesterday that's not going to happen, that the funeral plans will be handled by uh, the, the families of those who died in the crash. Um, but there are these ongoing, you know, fissures in Russia over the war in Ukraine, how it's being carried out and and what is happening there. The counteroffensive uh, continues to gain incremental ground. Um, Ukraine uh, recaptured a Russian-occupied city yesterday. Russia continues to suffer very real uh, battlefield losses. Um, and then we have these headlines from Ukraine where... Uh, there are efforts by the Ukrainian government to get people in in the northeastern part of the country. They're actually trying to get them to evacuate their towns again because they know that that's where Russia's next offensive is going to be waged. And so on August the 10th, the Ukrainian government issued an evacuation directive um, and uh, not, and most people aren't leaving. They're not leaving. So uh, Valerie Potoska is uh, is a woman who's not leaving. She um, uh, she's sitting with another young mom. Their kids are playing barefoot on bicycles in the street. Little, you know, they look look uh, for all the world like uh, a, a rural American um, setting. I say that because the uh, the the road is dirt, and um, obviously uh, war has been raging in the region for some time. So the whole place looks a little unkempt. Mortars are exploding. Uh, 10 kilometers away, so just over six miles away, mortars are exploding almost constantly. But um, Valeria and her friend um, are just sitting there uh, watching their kids play. And she says it's normal. There's this soundtrack of mortars in the background, and she says it's normal. Relocating is too expensive. It's too difficult. This is our home. Um. And they remember the six-month-long Russian occupation of their town. They remember the Ukrainian liberation in September of last year. And they're not leaving again. They have signed documents stating that they understand that they're staying at their own risk. They uh, to talk about their friend Chesta, who is a teacher who fled the, uh, the fighting in Mariupol, but now refuses to leave um, Kupinikst. I'm probably not pronouncing that correctly. Um, that's where she started a new life. And she said, I'm not running away from them again. Now, you will notice that every single one of these stories features women, fairly young women, all under 40, all with kids, all trying to make a life. They're teachers. They are farmers. They are medics. They are not superhuman. But much is being expected of them. One woman described her 10-year-old son as an old man. Her neighbor, who is quite aged, is the one they refer to in their community as the little one. And everyone is working to care for him. He is fragile, she says, but he is precious and he is ours. And we will stay here until he decides to go. Maybe then we will go too. I want you to renew your prayers for the people of Ukraine today um, as Russia 
intensifies uh, its its war effort. Luke Moon's going to join us next. We're going to talk about the Russo-Ukrainian war through history's lens. That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. Luke Moon is joining us again today. You can find him at philosproject.org, also at providencemag.com. Good morning, Luke. Good morning. I want to talk about the Ukrainian fighting spirit versus the need of the Russians to hire mercenaries to fight their battles. Um, Talk with us a little bit about um, this Russo-Ukrainian war through history's lens. I'm I'm uh, referring to an article posted at ProvidenceMag.com for those of you interested in reading the whole thing. Yeah, it basically talks about the difference between uh, armies that are based in countries that where where the force has, uh, you know, in, in the country of origin, they have people have freedom. They can choose whether or not they want to fight in the battle versus places where there's conscription, where uh, there isn't that freedom. Uh, and as a result, what you have is the kind of motivation that lead somebody to go and fight for their nation. One is they have to fight and the other is they want to fight. And we could probably tell in any moment in our lives where where there's a difference between what we have to do and what we want to do. And mm. when we want to do something, we tend to have a lot more passion for it, right? We're, we're willing to uh, stick out the hardship. And when we're in, when we're when we have to, like, you know, the first hard thing to come across, we're like, well, that's it. I'm not doing that no more. And that's really what's going on. I mean, we have, you know, that, you know, the, the hiring of mercenaries was because twofold. One is, is that they didn't have, they don't have enough fighters who are willing to, you know, sign up to be part of the Russian armies to go and, you know, fight the Ukrainians. But also uh, that was, You know, that was actually, I mean, the Wagner force has been, I mean, they're involved in all over Africa. Uh, They probably pay, pay better, but you know, they're, they're soldiers of fortune. They're soldiers for hire. And, uh, you know, I think without the Wagner group, this whole conflict would have, would have gotten, gone much worse because they were, they were the ones that had experience. I mean, I remember early on in this conflict, Carmen, when, uh, you know, people the, the the soldiers were riding home to their moms, saying, "I thought we were just going on a training mission, right? Like, no, they didn't know they were going to go, you know, fight Ukraine." And uh, so, you know, I, it it just there there was a different. It goes back a long time, but I mean, just uh, something like a hundred thousand men. Uh, like signed up to be part of the Ukrainian war, like as soon as it started, because they're not like, this is our country. We're going to like fight for it. And I remember people who, who, uh, you know, he actually, I, I know some people here in, in New York who uh, are of Ukrainian descent that actually went over to fight just because mm-hmm. like this, they're like, we're going to hold our country. And they, and and like I said, they joined willingly, and as a result, uh, they've done much better. Yeah, and we're also aware that um, former members of the U.S. military uh, have have gone to to the aid of Ukraine um, and are serving actively there as well. It's a um, again, it's that 
It's that desire to defend what you know is right and fight for what you know is um, is moral. And that is a great motivator. Um, it's a much more significant motivator than the money paid to mercenaries um, and certainly a better motivator than, uh, you know, the, the conscription of citizens into a war that's not their own. Um, and so it's, it's a very interesting piece. And I just wanted to, to lift it up in terms of an opportunity for folks to engage at ProvidenceMag.com. Uh, the piece is the Russo-Ukrainian War Through History's Lens. We have talked at length in the past, um, Luke, but I think a, a refresher here is good as, w- uh, good as, as well. Um, the, the motivation of Putin is historical as well, or, or is, and oh, is, yeah. oh, he yeah. does have this like divine, he, he seems <laughs> to believe there's a divine mandate for him to be doing what he's doing. Can you just rehearse some of that for us as well? Yeah, well, one of the things that we're very, you know, at the Fields Project, we're very interested in is, is you know, what, what Robert Nicholson calls the deep map. It's usually the like it's the map below the map of the borders, the ma- the map below the, you know, what's on a what's on a globe when you spin it, right? It's the it's the lines of historic and religious connection, right? And so one of the one of the big maps, or the old, like the oldest, is the fact that. Uh, the Roman Catholic Church uh, was predominantly the church for basically from Kiev west towards Europe, and the Russian Orthodox was the was the church of the people from Kiev east. And so there is a line that runs through the middle of Ukraine that is uh, one half of the country is more Russia centric, and the other half of the country is more European centric, and that divide matters. Uh, that part of Ukraine that was part of the Russian Orthodox Church was part of the Russian Empire. So it's not just that it was, you know, like, yeah, it got carved up later. But back in the day, you know, that's how Putin sees it. I mean, Putin's not alone. There was, there's probably four or five different leaders in the world who all have kind of empiric visions of their, of you know, what you know, we want reviving, you know, Erdogan in Turkey. We'd love to see a revival of the Ottoman Empire. Um, you know, you have uh, the Ayatollah would like to see a return to the Persian Empire, uh, you know, and, and Putin's in that same boat. He'd like to see, you know, like we were once great. Right. We had once had this. We were feared. We were uh, we, people were afraid to mess with us because we were the Russian Empire. And and, you know, he wants to see that again. Um, And and Ukraine has that. Ukraine's always been a big uh, like a major place for that for two reasons. One is it's it's a very fertile place. So it's been the breadbasket of Europe and slash Russia for, you know, basically going right back to as long as anybody can remember. But. It's even now it's a major corridor for, uh, you know, the gas pipelines, oil pipelines go through Ukraine. That's a big motivation here. Uh, and so you have, you know, we, we think of this is just purely a political move. Then like, we're not really seeing that deeper level. Mm. Uh, the Ottoman empire you referred to in terms of Turkey ended in 1922, Russian empire, 1917. Um, we are talking about, um, 
a living memory for for people. I mean, we're talking about 100 years, and 100 years is just not that long. Um, I mean, it is in American history because we're so young, but it's not when we're talking about um, uh, nations and peoples that have been around for centuries and centuries. we got to take a very brief break. When we come back, can we talk about um, the stuff that we bring home with us from other places that has real meaning to people and what it starts to look like in a in a world like ours when we start talking about returning things that we took um, from other people groups, particularly when, the, when those artifacts have uh, have a spiritual component to them. Could we have that conversation? Sure. All right. Let's I want you it. to think for a moment about um, what you have in your possession um, at your church, maybe in a museum that you visited that actually legitimately belongs to someone else. And if it's a spiritual or spiritually oriented thing, like I want you to imagine that somebody else came and took, I don't know, your Ark of the Covenant. That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. As we consider the life of Jesus and the life of the first generation of Christians, reading here the book of Acts and all the letters to the Christians in the New Testament, we see people who like wake up. They come to see and understand and then receive Jesus as their Savior and Lord. And It changes everything. We see Christians then telling other people about the good news and inviting them to respond in repentance, be baptized, and follow Jesus. The movement of Christianity grows person by person and then exponentially as people walking in darkness receive the light of Christ and want others to know what they know and have what they have. Well, you and I are living in dark days. People need light. And Jesus is the light of the world today in the same way that he was the light of the world at the beginning of creation and at the first Christmas and throughout his life on earth and in his radiance now at the right hand of the Father. Jesus is the light of the world. So if you're walking in darkness of any kind today, I invite you to consider Jesus. If you'd like to know more about what it means to begin a relationship with Christ or to chat with someone about it, just text the word FAITH to 41224. All right, I uh, don't think there's any biblical significance to the crystal skull or the dial of destiny, but Raiders of the Lost Ark and the search for the Holy Grail and the Temple of Doom um, definitely were quests to rediscover um, where religious artifacts had been hidden away over centuries. So this came to my mind as I read an article uh, by the Associated Press describing a ceremony that was marking the start of a journey home for an indigenous totem pole that had been taken to Scotland 100 years ago. Um, And this 11-meter totem pole is being restored by the National Museum of Scotland to the Niska Nation in northern British Columbia. Um, and, uh, and so this journey of this religious artifact is, uh, is beginning. And I thought, what a good opportunity to talk with Luke Moon about all the stuff we steal from each other, um, and take possession of, and maybe it would give us an opportunity to talk about, uh, you know, biblical history as well. Yeah, Carmen, this is a really interesting story. I mean, I like, you know, I I read it and then I had to read all the stuff around it, uh, (laughs) You know, it was like, you know, this totem supposedly carved in in 1860 
1930 sold to the museum in Scotland uh, by a uh, Canadian anthropologist who actually I've since learned was like the expert in totem poles, like all the basically all of the books uh, right in the in the first half of the last century related to totem poles were written by him. He is like he was the expert. Um, and according to the Niska people, uh, he stole it uh, while they were out hunting and sold it to, you know, the Scottish Museum. I'm I'm a little suspicious. This story, like I get suspicious when stories are too like easy. Uh, yeah, it's probably much it's more big, complicated. It's a than big that. heavy thing, right? It's a big it's heavy a big... thing. So you do wonder how a guy could just take this thirty-six foot tall pole. It's big, right? And, and like, there, there, wow. I know there is mm-hmm. a picture also of the of it when it was standing in in this uh, in in the in British Columbia. And it wasn't like, um, well, in the picture, it wasn't like just, just kind of, uh, you know, placed ceremonially at the entrance of the village or anything like that. It was like in the woods, um, you know. It, it wasn't. Yeah, it was a. It's a. It, never mind the 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 story. It's it's still very interesting because what it does obviously thing, right? is like it brings to mind. This whole thing, two things are interesting to me about this. One is, like, as as Christians, how are we to think about uh, pagan idols, mm. right? Yeah. And because what I read in Kings and Chronicles is we're supposed to take those things down. Yeah. Um, Right. And so I always struggled with that. You know, I was I was I was a missionary. I was based in Hawaii and Hawaii uh, has had a, you know, a pagan revival of, you know, the former, uh, you know, all the ancestral worship and the worship of Pele and the, you know, nobody's throwing virgins into the volcano yet. But, you know, give us 20 years. We'll probably start doing that again. But, you know, I it's it always I always struggled with how do I respond to that stuff, right? Because I don't think we're supposed to just pretend it doesn't contain, uh, like, it's, I don't think we're supposed to celebrate that stuff. At the same time, there is, you know, cultural, historic, like, interesting things. So, like, you know, the Christian part of me goes, that's a demon in there. And then the, you know, cultural part of me is like, oh, that's really interesting. So I don't know. I'm stuck. Um, I think that when you talk about the things that people might purchase to bring home, um, a mask, a a charm, a dream catcher, a talisman of some kind. um, And you're right. If it has, if it is something that is dedicated to some kind of pagan idea or pagan idol or false god it's just not something we should even bring into our homes like that is literally something you should not bring home with you um and then i also think that when we talk about uh the history of the ark of the covenant there's an interesting conversation here for us to explore in terms of um god's defense of you know of his own uh 
you know his stuff how do, how do you even describe <laughs> like, it his own stuff god's own stuff you know yeah. it's, it's funny what came to mind is you know i have this box of uh, i have this box in my house of the stuff when i was a kid mm. right it's one box and and so it's that's like dark of the covenant was like god's stuff right it had the tablet yeah. it had a jar of manna had aaron's staff that had budded those were the three things that were supposed to be in the in the in the Ark of the Covenant, um, and it's you know it's gone. Nobody knows where it is. Uh, people think they know where it is, but it, it nobody knows. Well, I'm going to argue that it's in heaven, but but that's because I'm you know a, a revelation person, not a not a. Person. Oh wow! Yeah. So there you go. Yeah, yeah. Okay. That's a yeah, good one. To, I mean, that, well, describe, that would, it does, I mean, it describes in Revelation cool. that the Ark of the Covenant is is there. So I'm like, why wouldn't we just accept that it's there? God took okay. God to, took his stuff home. God you took know, his stuff his stuff home. Took his he's stuff, like, and he's I, like, I'm gonna keep it myself. You guys, yeah, <laughs> right, right. you guys are no good I mean, at keeping my stuff. That's right. I, I I put that stuff in the box for a reason. You keep losing <laughs> exactly. it, right? You keep losing it. <laughs> I'm going to take it home. All right, um, Luke, as always, it's a joy. Um, Yeah, if you want more on the Ark of the Covenant, uh, yeah, you should do a Bible study on it. It's absolutely fascinating. Um, It has an incredible history. And yes, you can watch Raiders of the Lost Ark as well, because, you know, there is a little bit of actual biblical history in there. So there you go. I mean, you know, it's kind of my favorite of that whole series. So there you go. Luke, as always, thank you so much. All right. Good to talk to you, Carmen. It's a joy. It's a joy. You're listening to Mornings with Carmen. We'll be right back. All right. I want you to think about um, who you might speak well of today. So it's called a eulogy, speaking well. Um, So what good words might you have today to speak over the life of someone else? And don't wait until tomorrow or wait until they're gone to eulogize them. So um, I'm thinking specifically today about the death of um, Joe the Plumber. You might remember Joe the Plumber from uh, the campaign cycle, um, President Obama. So this goes back some time ago. Um, Joe the Plumber became uh, kind of famous because John McCain began referring to this guy named Joe, who is a plumber, who had this conversation uh, on the campaign trail with then-candidate Barack Obama. Anyway, Joe the plumber has uh, succumbed to pancreatic cancer, and so we want to um, just lift lift him up, um, lift up his family. And uh, Bob Barker, 99, Price is Right, Bob Barker has died. And so don't wait until tomorrow to speak good words over someone um, who you appreciate and love, go ahead and eulogize them today. Tell them um, that you love them. Tell them that uh, whatever wrongs there have been between you, tell them that those are forgiven. Um, let them know that they are loved and appreciated. Um, speak good words today. In fact, speak the good word over the life of another person today. Don't, don't wait until tomorrow. That is certainly the good work set before us to do today. If you've been wondering what good works God has prepared in advance for you to do, this is certainly one of them. Speak good words over others. we got another hour together next. You're listening to Mornings with Carmen. This is Faith Radio.
Thanks for listening to Mornings with Carmen LeBurge. Podcasts like this are available because of your support. If it's important to you to hear things that encourage your faith, click the link in the show notes to give now. And thanks.